Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the events, issues, and people that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper, and with me today is Russell Moore, CT's Editor-in-Chief. Today we're going to talk about the battle for the Speaker of the House, the legacy of Pope Benedict. Then we're going to be joined by Dr. Derwin Gray. He's a pastor and a writer, and he's also a retired NFL player. He's going to join us to talk about DeMar Hamlin, his injuries, and how we think about a sport like this that has such serious risks for those who play it. So stay with us. So, Russell, as we record this right now, it's about noon Eastern on Thursday morning. You know, anything can happen. But this week's been unique. For the first time in 100 years, we've had this strange battle for the Speaker of the House of Representatives. It's being contested within the party who's in power. A lot of people saw this coming. I think it was uh, the political strategist Mike Murphy last week who said, this is not the election for the Speaker of the House. This is the election for the mayor of hell. And it's (laughs) kind of been proven true. You know, McCarthy's bent over backwards trying to make this thing happen. I heard a quote this week that I thought might be an interesting place to start. And then Something happened today that I think kind of plays into this. Matt Continetti, who's a journalist and a, wrote a, a terrific book on the history of conservative politics, he he said the way to think about this coalition that is opposing Kevin McCarthy, and forgive me, this is a Southern idiom. I may get this wrong. Maybe you can fix it. He said, but these are what in a previous era you would have called againers, which is they were against everything. And you know, you just see them sort of defining themselves primarily by their opposition. To me, it was interesting. This was kind of confirmed for me this morning. There was a really remarkable floor speech by one of the candidates. These folks are pushing as an alternative. The guy's name is Quincy Adams Wagstaff. Matt, if you could play the clip for us. I don't know what they have to say. It makes no difference anyway. Whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. Your proposition may be good. So this, of course, is Groucho Marx. It's actually a clip from the movie Horse Feathers. And and it's far more uh, a far more interesting thing, far more rewarding thing to watch this morning. Than I, I thought I was mentally breaking down because I was uh, thinking <laughs> I, I have no knowledge of this or memory of it at all. <laughs> yeah, I had to set you up there. So, all right. With that in mind, uh, unfortunately, Groucho Marx is not running for Speaker of the House. <laughs> yeah. What is going on here? How, what, what's happening right now up there? Well, first of all, being Speaker of the House has been a hellish job for some time, particularly on the Republican side. I remember one time meeting with John Maynard when he was Speaker about some issue or the other, and we ended up talking about the Protestant Reformation for most of the time because that's what he wanted to talk about. He's a Catholic who has an interest in Reformation uh, history, and afterward, 
one of his uh, staff members said, well, that was really good for him to kind of take a break for a minute from the nonsense <laughs> here. And that was a, a similar situation with Paul Ryan. And of course, now you have this humiliation of Kevin McCarthy going through six probably by the time we end this recording, seven votes. And you're right. It's a chaotic situation where you have a group of people, really two different groups of people, because there are some of them, Chip Roy, for instance, a friend, he and I don't agree on everything, but he he's not a hack. He, he really does have concerns about how the House operates and, and is objecting to the process for those reasons. But you do have others who, as you said, just simply want to throw chaos into the machine. That said, who can shed any tears here? Because these are people who've kind of made peace with chaos and have thought for so long, well, if you just appease it, it will go away. And what concerns me about that is not what's happening in the House of Representatives right now. Serious as that is, we don't even have a House of Representatives until we have the House organized in the speaker vote. That's important. But it's even more concerning to see this repeating itself in institutions of every kind, including churches, where a small group of people who actually are nihilists and just want to destroy things can control everything because nobody knows what to do. And that's really what's happening here. A friend of mine who's a member of Congress said yesterday, this is the most junior high place since junior <laughs> high school. In reality, it probably is more junior high than junior high school, and so is all of life right now. Yeah, I think I've, I've heard three different commentators at this point make reference to Alfred's line in The Dark Knight, yeah. where, you know, referring to the Joker, he says, some people just want to watch the world burn. And that definitely seems at play here. One of the things I've heard over and over again is that McCarthy's real blunder was actually in January 2021, when on the other side of January 6th, after condemning the events of that day, he then flies to Mar-a-Lago to make peace with Donald Trump and sort of opens the door once again to the Republican coalition to realign and, and support in that way. You know, people are saying like, hey, he opened the door here. Now these people have this sense of power, even though some of them barely won, right? Bobert yeah. won by a few hundred votes. Yeah. Is that the fatal flaw or does it go deeper than that? Uh, well, I think it's part of the fatal flaw of, of thinking all along, things will just work themselves out that there's some magical uh, moment where something happens and the forces of chaos go away. But I think a larger issue, when you talk about January 6th, Kevin McCarthy was saying one thing in private that's mm -hmm. diametrically the opposite of what he ends up saying in public. And so you have somebody initially very supportive of his colleague, Liz Cheney, and then was willing not only to abandon her and to have her voted out of her leadership position, but to work to see her defeated in her primary, even though he was saying the exact same thing behind closed doors. That's right. a bigger problem. And then I've seen this happen in church life, too. A lot of these guys who think, well, I can come in and play the part of crazy and then the crazies will love me end up not only not getting that because people can see through that as inauthentic, but also uh, ending up sacrificing their own integrity in the process. And mm -hmm. that's really the most humiliating thing about all of this. I mean, it, vote after vote after vote. It's not just that you have somebody not able to reach the goal that he's lived for for so long. 
It's that you have somebody who's going through all of this for what? I mean, mm-hmm. what what's the end result? It isn't some ideal. It isn't some principle. It's just ambition. And, and that's, I, I think, a danger any of us can have, which is why Jesus is consistently saying the inside and the outside have to be integrated. You have to have what's going on in the heart coming out of the mouth. And when that's disintegrated, it leads to real trouble. Well, well, what's interesting about it is that alongside all of this maneuvering for power are these, number one, there's a lot of Christian language attached to it within the Republican coalition and obviously within the church. But number two, there's always this, this interesting kind of language of persecution, language of martyrdom. We have to resist. We have to stand up. We're the persecuted minority and all the rest of it. And I I feel like what's lost on this day and age, uh, something I've said before, is like, look, everybody wants to be a martyr, but nobody wants to die. And Mm -hmm. the story of the martyrs, the stories of the church that are worth telling, the stories of the American founding, in a sense, was this real sense that, man, when those guys signed their name on the Declaration of Independence or when Martin Luther nailed something to the wall, what you see is, is a conviction that says, my life, my power, my position in society is worth sacrificing for something that actually means something. And, yeah. you know, like we say, we look at somebody like a like a Matt Gates and say, this does seem like somebody who wants the world to burn. He wants to do whatever he can to get his, his Fox News hits every yeah, day. Yeah, and that, that's what I was going to say. It's not people who want to see the world burn right. as much as people who want to be on television with the backdrop of the world burning. And, right. and that's really where the problem is. Well, and then you have... Uh, and then you have the ally, and that's where I think the McCarthy story is so interesting, is he participates in a lot of this language of, of sort of standing up for conservative principles and all the sort of rhetoric that you have right now. But he's gone through six votes that we know of as of right now, where it's yeah. very clear he's going to lose. And he's done everything possible to win, every compromise possible to win, and he's still going to lose. Yeah, because it's not about ideology here. It's the idea of a kind of theatrical temperament. And so you use this catastrophic language. The entire uh, world is on the precipice of collapse, and that's why the usual rules don't apply. We need fighters. And then Mm -hmm. you come in and say, well, what do you mean by fighting? What are you doing to actually achieve your goals? And it turns out, not doing anything. It's just that you want somebody who has the requisite amount of rage. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the problem for somebody like McCarthy. You want to use all the energy of that rage, but you don't actually believe it. And so it comes across as inauthentic and you end up losing everything. And that's, I mean, that, that's really where this ends up. And it, it's consumed the lives of person after person after person, not just in Congress, but in the church and in other places. And what ends up happening is you end up with the people who actually can lead with competence and with prudence leaving. Uh, mm-hmm. That's happened in Congress. I've seen that happening in churches and in denominations where people yep. say, nothing's happening here. I came into this in order to achieve some goals. That's not what this is about. It's mm-hmm. about theater. So I leave. They're replaced by more people who want theater. And it becomes this kind of circle that we found right now. And the only way that that ends, whether we're talking about in Congress or in church or anywhere else, is if people finally get tired of this and say, we're not looking to 
these situations for our sense of personal drama or our sense of self-expression. We really do believe these institutions are important. Democracy mm-hmm. is important. The Church of Jesus Christ is important, whatever the, the institution is. Until people get to that point of exhaustion, this is going to keep happening and get worse. Yeah. I think there's a narrative that a lot of people like me, you know, I'm, I'm just a few years younger than you, so I imagine you identify with this as well. I grew up in a time where by the time I was paying attention to anything in politics, the marriage between evangelical values and the GOP was pretty front and center. This was the party that cared about abortion. This was the party that cared about marriage. This was the moral majority. We cared about ethics in in our leaders. And um, I heard somebody talk through this the other day. I, I can't take credit for it, but I'll just throw it out there and we can talk about this. You look at the last 30 years of Republican speakers of the House. 1994, Newt Gingrich comes in, rides this red wave, contract for America and everything else. He drives the Clinton impeachment thing. The whole thing blows up in his face. And so he steps aside in 98, comes out about seven, eight years later that he was having an affair during the time that he was prosecuting the impeachment against Clinton. The nominee to replace him is a guy named Bob Livingston. But before he even begins his term, he resigns because of his own marital affairs. Mm -hmm. The guy who steps up in his place, Dennis Hastert, serves from about 2000 until his term ends in 2007. He's currently in federal prison for sexual assault of minors. John Boehner comes in in 2011. And the Boehner story is interesting because the populist movement really begins with the Tea Party around this time. And the way one person put it is he was Speaker of the House long enough to meet the Pope. And once he met the Pope, he'd met his life goals and moved on. Then Paul Ryan takes the job after Boehner. He really didn't want the job. There was a lot of negotiating to try to get him to take the job. And then his priority was this big corporate tax cut. On the other side of that, he got out of there fast as well. How should those of us who grew up thinking of the GOP in the way that I did as this moral majority space. How do we look back on this history where it's like every time you turn over a stone, there's something very gross and rotten underneath of it, given the rhetoric that we were indoctrinated with for all these years? Well, I think that's <laughs> that's clearly all of the illusions are being uh, lifted, and and part of the problem is not just the rot, but you know, as Jesus says, it's not that you're blind; it's that you think you can see. That's part of the problem here. I mean, I'll tell you. You mentioned uh, John Boehner. The most sympathetic figure I've ever met to John Boehner was Barack Obama. Hmm. We were in the middle of working through uh, an immigration package, and Boehner was uh, supportive, but then would pull back at the last minute. And I was expressing frustration about Boehner not carrying through on what he said he would do. Obama was the one who said to a group of us, look, you can't blame him. He's turning around and looking to see who's going to knife him in the back at any <laughs> at any moment. And you look back at that and you say, Oh, Bambi, those were such sweet, naive days because no one knew uh, what what the situation was going to be like uh, later on. And that's where we are right now. Yeah, if, if anybody wants to get a look inside those years of Boehner's, his memoir is quite telling. And I have to say the audiobook version of it is the yes. one worth listening to because yes. there's a lot of ad-libbing and the ad-libbing is the best part. <laughs> 
Yeah, um, yeah. He, uh, you, you could tell there's probably a bourbon uh, and a cigar <laughs> there as he's reading that audio. Book. Yeah, precisely. Well, as as you look to sort of what's next here, do you imagine on the other side of this anything productive coming out of that, either through the failure of it or through some new coalition emerging? I don't see a new coalition coming in at the last minute and resolving this problem. I think it's going to be longer term than that. Because again, it's not just about Congress. It's not just about politics. It's something much deeper in American culture right now. And that's going to take people saying, that's not what we're interested in fueling anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the the problem here is not with these politicians. A lot of them are really loathsome, uh, hollow characters who have to be in office in order to have any point of life, which is why they'll do anything to get in or to keep office. That's true. But they're responding to something in the American populace that says, this is what we want. It's not something serious. It's instead just this boiling rage and tribal posturing until people get tired of that and start supporting something different. We're going to see more of this. Yeah. We, we need better appetites if we want better options. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Well, we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast, Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. So on December 31st, uh, Pope Benedict XVI passed away. He was 95 years old. He was Pope Emeritus. He served as the Pope from 2005 to 2013 and broke precedent dramatically when he announced that he was going to retire in 2013. It's been interesting reading Remembrances this week because it seemed like at the time, especially amongst the traditional Catholics that were the most supportive of Benedict. They saw the break in tradition as being a, a real problem. But he was a unique figure in the Catholic Church, especially post-Vatican. I imagine from your work as an ethicist and a theologian, you probably encountered and read Benedict's stuff quite a bit. Uh, yes. I mean, I, I have plenty of critiques of Pope Benedict when it comes to, for instance, the sexual abuse crisis in the Catholic Church. But I can say if someone were to read his uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the volume particular that's from the baptism in the Jordan to the transfiguration, it is just unbelievably rich. And I went back and was sort of rereading through this this morning and seeing the way that he ties the Bible together. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, we as Protestants are accustomed to thinking of Catholics as not a Bible people. He was really anchored and grounded in understanding Scripture. And it's a helpful volume mm-hmm. for anybody just in rethinking how all of the Bible centers around Jesus. There's a section that I think about all the time where he talks about uh, Barabbas and mm-hmm. talks about the meaning of the name Barabbas, son of the father and this constant temptation to choose the alter ego, this son of the father that comes about through violence with Jesus. Who do you choose, Barabbas or Jesus? And that is continually the choice in front of us. I don't ever think of Barabbas that I don't uh, think about that. So he mm. he really was, in, in many ways, I think a, a much better scholar than he was as a leader. One of the real contributions it seems like he made as well was this this pushback against secularism. He articulated from a Catholic point of view the troubles of secularism, of relativism. One of his famous quotes from a homily in 2005, he says, having a clear faith based on the creed of the church is often labeled as fundamentalism, whereas relativism, that is, letting oneself be tossed around here and there, carried about by every wind of doctrine, seems the only attitude that can cope with modern times. We are building a dictatorship of relativism that does not recognize anything as definitive and whose ultimate goal consists solely of one's ego and desires. It struck me in reading the remembrances and and in reading some essays by him and about him that as a voice that spoke to those concerns in particular, especially on the other side of Vatican II, that sort of opened this door to all this religious pluralism, sort of a theological inclusivism, which is the idea that the death and resurrection of of Jesus makes way for any expression of authentic faith, whether it was in him or not, to salvation. He seemed to push back on that in important and lasting ways. Does that seem like something that'll be part of the uh, legacy? He, he pushed back on some of the implications of some of those things. He didn't push back on Vatican II, for right, instance. Right. And, and I think that's part of the problem is that many people look at Benedict and Francis. There was that uh, movie, The Two Popes, I think was the name of it, that kind of mm-hmm. used them as representatives of these different factions within the Catholic Church. It was always a much more complicated reality than that. Pope Benedict was not the anti-Vatican II, let's take the church back to Latin mass days and no salvation outside the church. And Pope Francis is not a radical liberation theologian or or something along those lines. It's a much more complicated uh, reality. But he did articulate in continuity with Pope John Paul II an awareness of, okay, we're in a different kind of moment right now, especially in Western Europe as a as, a, as secularization goes. Yeah. Well, I thought we could end this portion with his own words that struck me as, as particularly meaningful. It was from a sermon he gave right before Christmas in 2005. He says, the Lord God did not counter the threats of history with external power, as we human beings would expect according to the prospects of our world. His weapon is goodness. He revealed himself as a child born in a stable. This is precisely how he counters with his power completely different from the destructive powers of violence. In this very way, he saves us. In this very way, he shows us what saves. Hmm. Well, that was a beautiful thought. And it's oddly apt, given the earlier discussion, too, of this, the temptation to power. The temptation as a power for fixing the world, uh, defending the church, defending our values. There's something in the cross of Christ and 
and in the nativity itself, this image of weakness that I feel like, goodness, the church would, would benefit from reclaiming that in this moment. True. Absolutely. We will be right back. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Well, for our final topic today on the show, we want to talk about what's been going on this week in relation to the NFL. And to join us for this conversation, we have Dr. Derwin Gray. Derwin is a pastor. He is a writer. And he is an NFL veteran who played for actually my team, the Indianapolis Colts. There was a final year there somewhere else. We won't even talk about what that team was. In my mind and heart, Derwin, you are a Colt forever. So welcome to the show. Thanks for making time to talk to us today. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. And, uh, you, you know, so I, I suspect you were probably like a teenager uh, when I was playing for the Colts, if not in middle school. So, yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. I was in I was in high school mostly when those years that you were there. And so it's a heartbreaking year for the Colts. We talked about that a little bit before we got rolling here. We won't trouble everyone else with that, with my blues and sorrows. So, but yeah, we had a on Monday Night Football, you know, one of the most watched games of the week, probably the most watched game given the stakes of this particular game. There was a horrific injury that took place early in the game to a player named Damar Hamlin. He's a defensive player, but on, on the way to making a tackle, he took a hit to the chest. It's people have described this as kind of a one in a million injury. The timing of the hit literally in terms of the moment of the heartbeat in which he was hit, the point at the chest that he was hit, it triggered this essentially a heart attack. He went into cardiac arrest on the field, and it was just a horrible thing to watch. You knew the moment he collapsed from the way the players responded that this was not your typical, the guy got his bell rung and or he tore an ACL or something like that. Something awful was going on. He was given CPR on the field. He was ultimately taken to into intensive care. He he remains in critical condition as of this morning, though there are a lot of positive signs. But it's raised a lot of questions about how do we think about the NFL? How do we think about the injuries that these players suscept themselves to that we then watch and are entertained by? Earlier this week, Russell, you sent me these clips of an interaction between Shannon Sharp and Skip Bayless that I thought were pretty were pretty interesting because Bayless had posted a tweet the night of the game that was not at all in response to DeMar's injuries, you know, essentially saying, oh, wow, what's the NFL going to do? You know, how are they going to solve this puzzle? I wish I have a clip because a couple of days later, he co-hosts the show with Shannon Sharp, a former NFL veteran as well. And Sharp skipped the day after Hamlin's injury. And he came back the next day and he came on air and was essentially saying, look, here's why I missed. And we have the first part of this clip here that we'll take a listen to real quick. Skip tweeted something. And although I disagree with the tweet uh, and, and uh, hopefully uh, Skip would take it down, but I didn't want it. Well, yes. Time out. Time out. I'm not going to take it down because okay. I stand by okay. what I tweeted. Skip, let me. Okay. Finish. Let me. All right. Okay. Go ahead. No, you go. Go ahead. Let's go, Jen. 
Okay. I mean, I cannot even get through a monologue without you interrupting okay. me. Well, you could have came back. Skip, well, I thought, Skip, just let me. So then after this, there's an exchange between the two of them. And, you know, Sharp obviously is expressing this frustration about his own heart for those who've been seriously injured on the field. And the conversation kind of goes nowhere. And then this is how the, how the clip ends. Clearly, the bosses wanted you to offer explanations. So clearly, somebody... No, they did problem. not have... The, nobody... Let's go, Jen. Thoughts and prayers remain with Damar Hamlin. That's where the focus should have been, and not on the football game. Yes, let's go, Jen. Thank you. As he continues his fight. All right. So you end up with this really intense standoff between um, Bayless and Shannon Sharp. People familiar with sports... Well, one one of the reasons that was of, of such interest to me is because this comes after, when was it? A couple years ago when Skip Bayless was in the middle of the news for saying that the Dallas Cowboys quarterback, Dak Prescott, when he disclosed being treated for depression, that that was an admission of weakness uh, and that he shouldn't do that. It would impede his ability to lead his team, mm-hmm. causing great controversy. Now you have, uh, in in many ways, a really similar sort of controversy. Right. Derwin, I'd love to just, first of all, I'd, I'd just love to hear your heart for the players themselves. What are players going through as they've witnessed this and as they see these kinds of conversations happening where, I mean, Bayless is a notorious flamethrower. This is what he does. He says controversial things. He's harsh. And, and in a sense, that's the norm. And at the same time, you know, Sharp being indignant about it feels like righteous indignation as I hear it. So I wonder for you as a former player, how, do, how are you hearing this ongoing debate this week? Yeah, so um, I think, I think first of all, I will mention uh, Sharp and Bayless very briefly. I don't watch them. I particularly don't pay much attention to Skip Bayless. I think he's figured out that saying controversial things can keep him on air and make money. It's it's bad for the human soul to turn people into products. One out of five people in the United States of America have mental health issues. For NFL players, it's much higher because we're making contact with our frontal lobe. That's where impulse control is. And so to say that a man who admits that he has depression is struggling with weakness, it's borderline evil and no telling how many Young people will hear that and won't ask for help. So personally, this may shock you guys, but I don't listen to a lot of sport talk shows and those types of things. So I'll move past that. So my rookie year with the Indianapolis Colts in 1993, we're playing the Dallas Cowboys and a veteran corner on the team named Chris Good got injured and he was partially paralyzed and he couldn't move. And I remember as a 22-year-old rookie, like, this is my whole dream to play in the NFL. And I'm watching an NFL veteran with tears rolling down his eyes because he doesn't know if he's going to be able to walk again. So to put it in context, as NFL players, we love the game. But it is a violent, violent game. You know the risk of playing in the game but you never think it's going to be you. So I've broken my wrist and played in the cast. I've broken my leg, I've torn ligaments, I've separated shoulders, chronic back pain. I've had two concussions to where I was knocked out. 
But yet and still, I would do it all over again because I love the game and I know the risk. But one of the things about being in your early 20s and teens is you think that's never, ever going to happen to you. So that's number one. Number two, as NFL players, despite us battling each other tooth and nail, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do is play in an NFL game. The level of anxiety and stress and managing your emotions, plus playing with injuries and those types of things, you develop an incredible amount of respect for your opponent. Like you're playing against each other, but you're a part of a brotherhood. And so immediately when I saw the young man go down, I'm like, all right, he got his bell rung. But then my son sends me a text and says, dad, this is really bad. Mm. And when I seen the player's face, I'm going, okay, this is bad. Then when I find out he got CPR for nine minutes, like he virtually died on the football field. And the way the human body's designed, because the hit wasn't really that violent of a hit, but it hit at sadly the right moment. As players, you go from competitors to family immediately. And you think about your loved ones and the audience watching. I've been that player where I've been down and I've been hurt and my wife and family have been in the stands. My son, senior year in high school, he breaks his leg, tears his ligaments in his ankle and he's down on the field. And I'm like, oh man, our number's been called. That's mm. that's us. And so you got to go down to the field. It is it is terrifying and it is the worst thing imaginable to happen. But what happened to Mr. Hamlin was even so much more, mm -hmm. right? Also, what I saw is I knew immediately both teams would pray. The National Football League has a strong and in a good way, evangelical culture. When I say evangelical, I don't mean all the political nonsense. I'm talking about the good news that makes sense, that I came to faith through teammates in the National Football League. For whatever is going on in our society, I don't think what's called the nuns are leaving Jesus. They're leaving traditional denominations. As a pastor of a flourishing, large, multi-ethnic church, and that's non-denominational, there's a hunger and when there's a crisis, people feel this impulse, particularly in America, to bow down and pray to Christ. And so it was moving to see that, but not shocking to see that because I know the evangelical good news culture of an NFL locker room. Mm -hmm. But then taking a step back, one of my first thoughts was, man, I'm glad my son retired from playing. He was an incredible player, highly recruited, but I was like, Man, I'm glad I don't have to carry that type of weight mm -hmm. anymore as a parent. Well, what would, what would you say, Derwin, to those who would say, well, you've described this as a violent game, and one of the distinctives of early Christians in the Roman Empire not going to gladiator competitions and so forth, the bloodshed there. What would you say to the people who would say there's something deadening to the soul watching that kind of violence? Yeah, so what I would say is there's a vast difference between – gladiators mm -hmm. and football players, that the goal of gladiating is literally to take another's mm -hmm. life. The goal of football is to play a fast physical game 
and you're not trying to injure or maim your opponent. And when you look at the history of football, what makes this event so unique is it's so rare. And Mm -hmm. so what I would say is football at the end of the day, it is entertainment. It is a game, but it's big business. It's business in high school. And oh my gosh, it is business with these suburban house moms and and dads who are getting their kids personal trainers. I'm like, listen, mom, dad, your son, the only time your son's going to play in the NFL is if he buys a ticket and goes to a game. <laughs> he's not playing in the NFL. He's 88 pounds and he's 12. So forget about it. It ain't going to happen. So it's a game, but it's also business. And with this particular business, the product that's playing, the entertainers that's playing, you risk injury. You know, like a Tom Cruise. I mean, Tom Cruise literally like jumps across buildings and tears ligaments and breaks bones. But we enjoy his movies. But the goal is different. Gladiators were like, I'm trying to kill you. Whereas with an NFL player, I want to play fast. I want to play physical, but I'm not trying to hurt you. No one was trying to hurt me. One of the worst things is when I've hurt another player. So October 8th, 1995, we're playing the Dolphins. And I was with the Colts and I came in on a blitz and I absolutely creamed Dan Marino. So as a middle schooler, I watched Dan Marino and I'm like, I idolize this guy. And the next thing I know, I'm tearing ligaments in his knee, blood drain out of his hip. I knock him out of a game. And so the next game that we play the Dolphins, I'm a team captain. He's a team captain. And before the game, I'm like, hey, Dan man, I am so sorry, bro. I did not mean it. He goes, I know you didn't, but it's the hardest I've ever been hit. And we started Mm -hmm. laughing. And so what I would say is, yes, please, please, please know that if you sign up for football, it is a physical and violent game. But on the flip side, though, Russ, football has been a means of God's grace to Mm me. When my home life was chaotic as a kid, violence and guns and drugs abuse. Football was my sanctuary. I had coaches who were believers. It gave me discipline, structure, teamwork. The greatest leadership lessons I've ever learned have come on a football field. How I lead Transformation Church, I learned from coaches. How I came to faith was through football. Even now, as a 51-year-old, if I say I played in the NFL, It opens up doors for me to share the gospel. And and so I would reject the claim that being a gladiator and a football player is the same Mm -hmm. thing. But I would accept if you sign up for this, it is a physical game. And the kids today are bigger, stronger and faster. My son at 17 was three inches taller than I was when I was in NFL. Mm -hmm was as fast as I was and 15 pounds heavier than me. As a grown man at 17, he dwarfed all mine. And he was still a kid. He hadn't even hit maturity yet. And so when you have this measure of physicality, difficult things are going to take place. But even with Hamlin's injury, though, that wasn't a result of a physical, brutal hit. Right. Mm -hmm. Russell, I'd love to hear you kind of speak to this. Somebody comes to you and says, my son... He's 12, he's super athletic, he's big, he's gifted, he wants to play this game. How would you counsel them? How would you help them think through these questions? 
Well, I would be in a very similar position to Derwin in terms of saying, take into account the risks. Any sport evacuated of risk is no longer a sport. And we know that uh, the Bible commends sports in many ways. So, so that doesn't mean that I wouldn't allow my child to do it. Uh, I think maybe a bigger consideration that I would have or as much of a consideration would be exactly what Derwin was talking about a little bit ago about the way that high school sports particularly has become something more than a sport and has become an all-consuming aspect of life. And so when it comes to traveling teams and so forth, taking somebody out of the rhythm of a church, I mean, I've seen that happen many times and and that would concern mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. Well, just as we wrap this up, I'd love to just kind of come back to the beginning of this because I think... What's in such contrast in that interchange between Sharp and Bayless, and again, we don't need to dwell on that too much, but it's just the reality that I think you've helped bring home here of these are human beings, this is real life, there's a world outside the game, the game is supposed to be pointing to something outside the game and draw us outside the game. You've talked a lot about parents and kids, you've talked a lot about athletes, what about us as viewers? who see this as entertainment. Well, I couldn't wait to get to this point. (laughs) Yeah. Okay, so so let me give you an illustration. So I'm sitting in my doctoral class, and there are 16 of us. We're getting a doctorate, New Testament in context, Jesus and Imago Dei and all this beautiful stuff. And somehow, some way, we got on the topic of Jay Cutler, who was a quarterback for the Bears. And so I'm sitting back going, okay, I'm literally the only one in this room who could speak credibly to this. (laughs) And maybe Scott McKnight, because his son is a scout for the Cubs, right? So he's kind of close pressure sports. So I'm listening to people. And man, they are slandering this Jay Cutler guy that they have no clue about. So I'm just, I'm breathing. (laughs) And finally, I sense the Holy Spirit said, okay, let it rain. (laughs) So I... I paused and I said, uh, can someone show me in the New Testament where it says that we can slander and talk this degradingly about somebody made in the image of God? And a guy sitting next to me from Ireland, he goes, but Darwin, he makes $15 million a year. And I said, oh, yeah, the scripture says, based on the amount of money someone makes, you can slander them. And the room just got silent. And I said, let's take a step back. It's okay to critique how a person plays, which, by the way, that person would destroy each of you. (laughs) And every spring, there's tryouts. Now, only an elite of the elite group of people in the world are get called to those trials. So you probably won't get called to it. But if you did, it would be one of your worst times ever. And so I said, just take a step back and remember, these are human beings made in the image of God that Jesus Christ died for. So don't let the world shape how you talk about image bearers. Mm. If you can legitimately critique what's wrong with the player and his game, that's fine. But when you go personal, that's slanderous, and the Bible calls that sin. Secondly, we should watch the game. 
and not see players as simply fantasy football points, which, by the way, DraftKings is nothing but legalized gambling. Fantasy football is nothing but legalized gambling that is contributing to gambling addiction. It's just a way for them to get around it. It has made the NFL more popular than ever, and people are viewing players as fantasy football points. Mm. They're not viewing them as somebody's son, Mm. somebody's daughter. Case in point, years ago with the Colin Kaepernick issue, which, by the way, he's been vindicated on so much of what he did, I got offended that people would go, well, the game, I don't want to see a protest. And I said, oh, okay, so you want me or my son to get you fantasy football points, but you don't care what happens to us after the game. And I said, guys, as Christians, we really have to intentionally have a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is not just being against abortion. Pro-life is all of life, and that's how we see human beings. And so as followers of Christ, when we watch the game, we should root, we should cheer, we should get excited about big hits, but we should also see the players for what they are, image bearers who Jesus died for, who are uniquely gifted. Man, and when I go back and I do these chapel at 51 years old, I look into the, the eyes of a guy that's 6'5", 300 pounds, muscles everywhere, and I see a kid, mm-hmm. a kid just figuring life out. And my part of the journey is to pour into him what I've learned. That's good. That is good. Well, thank you so much for being with us here today, Derwin. I look forward to your texts next year when the Colts are doing much better <laughs> and they're much more positive. But uh, in the meantime, thank you for joining us. Thank you for your ministry. And thank you, everyone, for listening to The Bulletin with us this week. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producer, Eric Petrick. Host and producer, Mike Cosper. Producer and editor, Azure Phelps. Additional editing and operations, Matt Stevens. Music, editing, and mix, Dan Phelps. Graphic design, Brian Todd. Social media, Kate Lucky. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.